from Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. On today's show, 100 years after the end of World War I, veterans gather to reclaim the true meaning of Armistice Day. We begin this solemn procession on what we've commonly called Veterans Day, but what is really Armistice Day, with a commitment as people of peace, both veterans and families of veterans and supporters of veterans. And for this month's episode of The F Word on Fascism, human rights activist Ajamu Baraka joins us to talk about the military-industrial complex. If we can achieve that, then maybe we can reverse the, the wholesale theft of public funds that are going from the pockets of working class people straight into the pockets of the military defense contractors. All that and more coming up. We are standing for our futures and Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Veterans and activists gathered at several actions in D.C. at the start of this week on the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I, during which 40 million people died and trillions were spent in this first conflict conducted on an industrial scale. Veteran peace activist Joe Lombardo was among those who spoke on the National Mall before a silent procession past several war memorials. Lombardo spoke about reclaiming Armistice Day, a day of peace, which was the original holiday before Veterans Day. And he talked about defeating President Trump's plan for a military parade. This military, the largest in the world, wanted to have a military parade to say, if you oppose us, we will, we will squash you. But 260 organizations signed a, a thing saying, we will be there to oppose your military parade. Nobody supported the military parade, and he dropped it, and that's a great victory for, for all of us. The activists gathered also voted to meet again on April 4th, 2019, on the anniversary of the assassination of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. to protest Trump's scheduled meeting in D.C. that same day with the Military Alliance NATO, the North American Treaty Organization. The war at home against harassment, brutality, and death at the hands of police is taking center stage at a hearing as we go to broadcast on November 16th. Black Lives Matter, the American Civil Liberties Union, and the Stop Police Terror Project are arguing in court that the District of Columbia's Metropolitan Police Department and the Office of Mayor Bowser have unreasonably delayed implementation of the Stop and Frisk Data Collection provisions of the NEAR Act. The NEAR Act stands for Neighborhood Engagement Achieves Results Act. The plaintiffs are asking the judge to Order MPD's full compliance with the law, which is designed to ensure that the police do not unfairly and unconstitutionally target people and communities of color when conducting these stops. Although black people make up 47% of D.C.'s population, they remain the subjects of the vast majority of all stop and frisks and uses of force in the district. Muslim activists also met this week to discuss how federal laws target them for surveillance and harassment. Chantal James has more. On Monday night at the Potter's House, Justice for Muslims Collective hosted a panel discussion of the CVE, or Countering Violent Extremists Program, which continues from the Obama era. 
Speakers were Kristen Garrity Scarcity of the Bridge Initiative, Yolanda Rondon of the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee, Nabiha Makbul of Muslim Advocate, and Hina Zuberi of Rashidun, D.C. Moderator Maha Halal led this discussion of the program's harmful tactics of surveillance which criminalized Islam in putting the burden of preventing acts of terrorism on Muslim communities. Nabiha Makbul explains how the effects of this program on communities in the D.C. metro area have implications across the country and the world. What happens in the DMV area has ramifications for areas far beyond that. So um, literally the proximity of Montgomery County to Washington, D.C. was what made it um, so easy to lobby the program as something to emulate nationally. And despite the fact that it's been disbanded, opposed, uh, rebranded, it continues to perpetuate itself in the same, same models across the country. From Adams Morgan, this is Chantal James. In climate news, dozens of young environmentalists with the Sunrise Movement occupy the office of Representative Nancy Pelosi, the House Minority Leader, who wants to be House Majority Leader again come January. Co-founder of the Sunrise Movement, Varshini Prakash, rallied those gathered in Pelosi's office calling for a Green New Deal to ensure good jobs and a future for their generation. On Tuesday, Nancy Pelosi got on national television and she said that their climate plan would be putting forward a committee to study the impacts of climate change and educate the public. It's 2018, y'all. Does that sound like the kind of solution we need? No! Absolutely not. If Pelosi wants to study the impact of climate change, she should go back to her home state of California where people are dying and burning from fires that have destroyed entire towns like the town of Paradise. It's a paradise lost. And we are fighting to make sure that it's not a planet lost. And finally, in culture and media, the annual Busy Bee Holiday Gift and Art Show kicks off this November 23rd and 24th with 60 pop-up shops at the Shiloh Family Life Center, 1510 9th Street in Northwest D.C. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, historian Gerald Horn. Stay with us.
This is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivera. And our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, is on the line to talk about international news with us again today. And Gerald, I want to first ask you about, well, I should say that much of today's show is dealing with the centennial of the end of World War I and Armistice Day and all the events happening here in D.C. around that this week. So I know that Trump's trip to Europe caused a lot of fireworks, both in Europe, where he was rebuked by Macron, and then here at home because he did not visit the memorial sites of U.S. soldiers and kind of honor the meaning of the trip. Well, World War I, 1914 to 1918, was touted at the time as the war to end all wars. In many ways, it was an imperialist war to determine who would control the fruits of colonialism. In many ways, Germany thought that Britain had more than a lion's share, and the war in some ways was ignited by Germany's attempt to claim some of that lion's share. That was the thesis put forward by W.B. Du Bois, in fact, in his famous article, The African Roots of War. Now, to get to what happened this past Sunday, President Macron and the ceremony that took place rebuked and reprimanded President Trump for his so-called America First initiative, which Mr. Macron suggested, I think quite correctly, is quite dangerous. Now, of course, uh, Mr. Macron has another agenda in mind, that is to say how the so-called America First agenda disrupts the idea of North Atlantic hegemony led by the United States. Mr. Trump is going for U.S. hegemony. That is to say, even Western Europe coming under the direct domination and sway of U.S. imperialism. But in any case, a few hundred miles east of Paris at the same time was a very disturbing event that should have received more publicity, particularly, I would say, if amongst the underground audience. What I'm referring to is this white power march that took place in Warsaw, Poland, Hundreds of thousands marching in Warsaw, Poland, in an ultra-righteous, neo-fascist march. The ostensible reason for the march was marking the 100th anniversary of Poland's restored independence in the wake and the aftermath of World War I. But last year, this year, and I dare say it's going to become an annual event, this has become a demonstration of white power. Now, listeners might be scratching their heads and saying, isn't it true that unlike Germany, Poland turned away most of those fleeing the wars in Libya and in Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan who were seeking refuge? Isn't Poland a so-called ethnically homogeneous country, particularly compared to some of its neighbors like Germany, well, there hangs a tale. Because recall that just a few weeks ago, a leader of Poland was in the White House offering to open a U.S. military base on Polish soil that would be called Fort Trump. What I'm suggesting to you is that Poland sees itself as emulating Washington, emulating the neo-fascist trends that are erupting in the United States of America, 
that have taken root in Brazil and in Italy and in Austria and in a good deal of Europe. And this demonstration this past Sunday, I dare say, was a shot over the bow at the on-the-ground audience, and I would say more broadly, a shot over the bow at the anti-fascist, anti-racist community at the United, in the United States of America because racism and neo-fascism increasingly in this country is being propelled by global gusts, and unfortunately, many of our community are not paying attention to these critical and crucial global events. Well, second, there were also big changes in London where Theresa May's big Brexit plan has apparently been discarded by her own party. What's going on there? Her government is hanging by a thread. As a matter of fact, by the end of our conversation, there may be a new prime minister in London. Her attempt to craft a proposal to pull Britain out of the European Union is not satisfying the hardcore right wing, which wants what I would consider to be an unrealistic break, clean break with the European Union. It's not satisfying those who would like to remain in the European Union, clearly, because she is trying to pull Britain out of the EU. And I think for a good deal of the Labour Party opposition, their idea is that why interfere in what's going on with regard to the Tory party committing suicide when that's basically, in their estimation, going to lead to the Labour Party coming to power sooner rather than later. In any case, I think that what we should be thinking about here is why is it that both the United States and the U.K., or going through such tremendous political difficulty and going through political difficulty that's engineered from the right, be it the Tory party in London or the Trumpistas in Washington, D.C., I would suggest that what happened during the previous epoch, that is to say the Cold War, is that London and Washington were at the tip of the spear in order to fight the Cold War, they thought it was necessary to weaken the left wing, particularly left wing labor leaders and left wing unions, and that now Washington and London are reaping the whirlwind of that decision because it's led to these unrealistic ideas in London about how Britain can now resume or reestablish its imperial glory pre-1945 and this idea in Washington of a similar sort that Mr. Trump will, quote, make America great again. Hmm. Well, we'll certainly keep a watch on what happens in the coming weeks and months. I've been joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you so much for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you.
here 100 years after a declaration was signed, the Armistice Declaration, to recognize the war to end all wars. And here we are 100 years later and it's still happening. Uh, I'm the, the Reverend Bruce Wright with the Poor People's Economic Human Rights Campaign and Refuge Ministries. And war is inexplicably connected to, the war machine is inexplicably connected to poverty. It is a war on the poor here, at home, and abroad. And we're here to recognize that that must end. That we must move into a new era committed to peace and justice. And my faith tradition as a minister, Christian minister, in the Christian uh, New Testament, it tells us that Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. In the Jewish tradition, it speaks from the prophet Isaiah, beating your swords into plowshares. In the Muslim tradition, the prophet Muhammad said that it was necessary to be a follower of Allah, to be a peacemaker. In the Buddhist tradition, there's a commitment. There's a commitment to learning peace and learning to not support the notion of war and the same is true in the Hindu tradition as well as many other faiths and being a humanitarian and a commitment to humanity teaches us that and so we are going to begin this solemn procession with first a moment of silence for all the fallen victims of war and that includes not just veterans in this country, but veterans in other countries, as well as the greatest casualty of war, which is civilians, particularly women and children. God of the universe, whatever we may call you, the great spirit, Allah, the holder of all things together, we begin this solemn procession on what we've commonly called Veterans Day, but what is really Armistice Day, the 100th anniversary, with a commitment as people of peace, both veterans and families of veterans and supporters of veterans. And so as we commit ourselves to peace, as we commit ourselves to justice, as we do this solemn procession, may we do so to honor the fallen victims. May we do so in recognition of the pain and suffering of so many veterans, including the more than 25 every day that end their lives in this country. And we recognize it's probably more, and if we were to combine it with all the other victims of war, the numbers are like the sands on the beach. Too, no, too numerous to number. And so we ask that you would continue to guide us towards peace and let this be a first step. Amen. Thank you, Bruce. My name is Bill Holmans. I'm a representative of the Vietnam Veterans Against the War. I was first here in 1971 when we uh, tossed the medals over the Capitol fence 
We want to welcome especially all veterans and I'm here to reclaim the meaning of Armistice Day. Everybody keep your spirits up. We can still resist and win against the odds that we are opposing here. Thank you very much, and we're going to begin our march just as quickly as uh, uh, maybe, we, do, we, do we have a member of a military family speak out? Good morning. My son uh, was a major in the Marines. He served twice in Iraq. He's now out of the Marines. But the, I'm carrying this photo of my friend John Fenton and his son Matthew, Sergeant Matthew Fenton. John and his family were called to Walter Reed because Matthew had been hit by an IED. Thank you. The whole floor at Walter Reed was filled with people whose heads were shrunken from the impact of IEDs. Matthew died a week later. I stand here for my friend whose son Walter wrote to her and she read a letter to me as we were standing at our vigil in Teaneck, New Jersey. He described how he killed somebody in Iraq. And he said afterwards, I laughed. And we were struck by that and we know, I said in my mind, that her life and his life would be filled with tragedy. And indeed, when he came back, he suffered from PTSD. He was in those PTSD programs at the VA, the residential programs. They wouldn't let him go back for another one, another. He's dead now. I stand here for the Lucys, Kevin and Joyce Lucy and their family whose son was treated at the VA and then when he went back for further treatment they said come back when you've dealt with your drinking problems. He hung himself in the basement. Military families are less than 1% of the population. People around this country don't know what happens to our veterans when they come back, and they don't know what happens within the families. They don't know about moral injury. They don't know about the PTSD. They don't know about the traumatic brain injury. They don't know about the toxic poisoning. 
from the burn pits, from depleted uranium. Many of our families have been torn apart. Many people here, our families have been torn apart by the wars. We think also about the civilians, the millions of civilians created by these wars that were based on lies. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And this week's commemoration in D.C. that you just heard voices from of the centennial of the end of World War I and Armistice Day also coincides with the third week of the month when we do our special segment, The F Word, that explores fascism today. As our listeners know, the touchstone for this segment is the statement by 1960s revolutionary George Jackson who defined fascism as the complete control of the state by monopoly capital. He said that fascism is that last stage of capitalism in the heart of U.S. imperial center, where the relationship between the state and corporation becomes indiscernible. And we think surely nothing in our reality today in the U.S. touches on Jackson's definition more than the military-industrial complex. With me today to discuss the military-industrial complex and its control over the U.S. here and abroad is Ajamu Baraka, human rights activist and national coordinator for Black Alliance for Peace. He was the nominee for vice president of the United States for the Green Party in 2016. Welcome back to On the Ground, Ajamu. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, I want to first start with the fact that it seems like we are in such a dangerous time with the military budget only going upward and only one or two elected leaders brave enough to speak out against this continued increase in military spending and these tremendous profits reaped by defense contractors right here in the D.C. area. So on this anniversary of the armistice, and I know you were one of the people who participated this weekend in D.C., You know, what are your broad thoughts about the power and role of U.S. corporations over the U.S. military and therefore over the government here and abroad? I think we see the the power of corporate capital in the fact that in the run up to the midterm election, uh, with all of the issues that people were focused on, that theoretically was supposed to define the range of concerns of the U.S. population, the one issue that was not an object of debate was militarism and war. And we see that as a reflection of the fact that the defense contractors and the bipartisan commitment to a war agenda has been able to conspire effectively to ensure that that issue is now part of the uh, political discourse here in this country. So, you know, it's important for people to to understand and to recognize that when it comes to this issue of advancing U.S. hegemony, of uh, maintaining and expanding and strengthening the ability of the U.S. state to project itself militarily, there is no difference 
in positions between the two major parties. Both are committed to the military agenda. Both are committed to the permanent war agenda. And we see that uh, reflected in the lack of discourse on this issue and normal politics, if you will, in this country. I just happened to be rereading A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. And because I think that a lot of us tend to think of this military spending as being somewhat like a recent issue. But he, he talks about how it kind of started. World War II was a real lesson for the government, the U.S. government and corporations here in learning how war could be an engine for the economy. And so after that, they decided to just kind of keep going with that system. And I want to read just a a portion of this that might be, I think, appropriate. It was an atmosphere in which the government could get mass support for a policy of rearmament. And they were talking about the beginning of the anti-communism scare in this country and how this was used to basically rearm and to keep up the military spending after the war. The system so shaken in the 30s had learned that war production could bring stability and high profits. Truman's anti-communism was attractive. The business publication Steele had said in November 1946, even before the Truman Doctrine, that Truman's policies gave, quote, the firm assurance that maintaining and building our preparations for war will be big business in the United States for at least a considerable period ahead, end quote. That prediction turned out to be accurate. At the start of 1950, the total U.S. budget was about $40 billion, and the military part of it was about $12 billion. But by 1955, the military part alone was $40 billion out of a total of $62 billion. A small but courageous movement against the military buildup led by the War Resisters League and other groups failed to stop it. In 1960, the military budget was $45.8 billion, 49.7% of the budget. That year, John F. Kennedy was elected president and he immediately moved to increase military spending. In 14 months, the Kennedy administration added $9 billion to defense funds, according to Edgar Bottom in The Balance of Terror. So when I read that, I was just struck by how it mirrors so many of the concerns that people have today. And you know, as a peace activist, What are some of the avenues or strategies that people are discussing to inform the public and kind of beat back this ramped up spending? Well, you know, one of the things that we have to do and we in fact are doing is to, to bring information to the public so they can understand their interests versus the interests of the ruling elite. In your comment and your question, you laid out some of the contradictory history of the roles of both political parties when it comes to the military agenda. In the public imagination, people tend to believe that it is the Democrats who are supposed to be the the peace party, if you will, the ones that are oppositional when it comes to war and militarism. But in fact, the objective history of this country, in particular after the Second World War, demonstrates the, the opposite. Truman was a Democrat. Truman and his advisors understood that what really saved the U.S. economy coming out of the Great Depression wasn't just the reform programs of the Roosevelt administration. It was, in fact, the Second World War. 
And there was a real concern that there could be a downturn in the economy without increased military spending. And they understood, too, that they had to have increased military spending because the U.S. came out of the Second World War as an empire. And that's why the first episode of conditioning the U.S. public to support increased military spending was, in fact, the Korean War, executed, created by a Democrat. The next major war that the U.S. found itself in was, what, Vietnam in the 1960s. Under who? A Democrat, John F. Kennedy. So we see, and this is what Eisenhower spoke to, the fundamental importance of military Keynesianism when it comes to U.S., the U.S. economy, but also the imperialist agenda, the objective imperialist need by the U.S. state uh, to garner support from the public, to uh, support these obscene levels of military expenditures in order to advance the interests of the ruling elite. So today, the task is just as stark as it was a few decades ago to try to get access to the U.S. population in order to try to educate people around the fact that the interests of the 1% that's defined as the so-called national interest are not the interests of the vast majority of the people. And therefore, if we can achieve that, then maybe we can reverse the, the wholesale theft of the pu of public funds that are going from the pockets of working class people straight into the pockets of the military defense contractors, the Northrop Grumman's and Boeing and Lockheed Martin and General Dynamics and Raytheon. Uh, these are the ones who are making the money off of this, off of militarism and off of war. When you talk about the Korea War and Vietnam, it also reminds me that in many situations, what the U.S. Is, is experiencing now is blowback from previous wars and invasions abroad. When you talk about Afghanistan, when you talk about North Korea, South Korea, these are places where the U.S. has gone in in the past and destabilized governments. And now not only is the U.S. facing blowback, but the whole kind of world economy I mean, I was really struck thinking about the rise of this fascist Bolsonaro in Brazil and the fact that when the former democratically elected leadership was facing real attacks, you know, from the right wing in Brazil, President Obama, they did not come to the defense of Dilma Rousseff. You know, they didn't do anything when Lula was clearly being prosecuted uh, in a in a political way with political motivations. And now what do we have? We have a open fascist running the, you know, most populous country in Latin America. So I just kind of see blowback all around when you start talking about how our money has been used in the past around the world. You know, Amy Cesar talked about blowback in terms of fascism during World War II. He reminded everyone that the kind of fascism that uh, Hitler brought to Europe was the fascism that had been imposed by the European project, the European colonial project on peoples across the planet, in particular in, in Africa and in Latin America. Right. Uh, so 
this is the, you know, when we talk about fascism and, and, you know, and people are so concerned about these various forms of fascism that we see developing today, we've got to, those of us who come from oppressed communities, uh, nationally oppressed communities, colonized communities, we have a different perspective and different understanding of history and what fascism means and our relationship to fascist-type uh, governmental uh, setups. So for us, it's not anything new. And so we have to put this uh, in perspective. So, yeah, that blowback in terms of the kind of, of political uh, support that these states, U.S. in particular, have given to these uh, more nakedly fascist political movements, like what we have and what unfolded in Brazil, or what unfolded in the Ukraine under, again, the Obama administration, what happened in Honduras when the Obama administration gave the green light to the coup in Honduras, and now we have people marching up from Honduras to the U.S. All of these issues are interconnected, and as you said, they're part of one oppressive uh, reality. Oppressive realities that are the consequences of certain kinds of relationships that have been in place for the last few hundred years. Then now, because of this the level of crisis within the colonial capitalist system, we are seeing the internal contradictions in the U.S. that were glossed over and managed uh, for many years. Now they are no longer being able to be managed. Now they are coming to the surface. And we're seeing this in the politics of this country and the division between elements of the ruling class and the decisions being made by all elements of the ruling class to systematically move away from their commitment to even the shell of democracy here in this country. So it's a very dangerous situation that we face, one in which is quite clear that the ruling elements have decided that they're going to use force and militarism, and in fact will be prepared to engage in a fascist configuration if necessary in order to maintain their dominant positions in the society and in this system. Very dangerous. Yeah, and I think it's also dangerous because in this appeal to nationalism and this appeal to basically white nationalism and white supremacy, they seem to be enlisting this extreme right wing, primarily white males who seem to have heard this kind of wolf whistle, basically, that in order for us to maintain this position, and they want to recruit, you know, working class white men, as if they are soldiers, or, you know, part of that whole struggle in order to kind of maintain uh, some sem semblance of white supremacy around the globe, we want to recruit you in this effort to not only repress people abroad in the military, but also here at home. You know, that our survival depends on this militarism. I think that it's not stated explicitly, but I think that that's somewhere in the messaging in conservative media, Christian media, all kinds of media that is appealing to uh, the extreme right. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is part of the, of the neo-fascist uh, playbook, that as the capitalist system continues to deteriorate, they have to use convenient scapegoats. And because the, the core value of the colonial capitalist system is, rests on the notion of white supremacy, 
the scapegoats, the targets, tend to be non-European populations. Before Jewish people became white, it was the, the Jews in, in Europe. Now it is so-called, so-called people of color and black people in the U.S., that these are the ones that are the internal enemies, the ones responsible for the, the deterioration of your lifestyles, that these people who are, who are using resources uh, from the state in order to prop up their lifestyle, you know, taking advantage of so-called welfare, uh, those people who are coming across the border illegally in order to take your jobs and to drive down wages, the ones, these people who are going to basically end up subordinating white people so that white people now are the new uh, victims of discrimination. And these messages um, are resonating with, with certain elements of the population, but this is part of that, of that, of that playbook. And that's what makes this, this, this moment so critically uh, uh, dangerous uh, because there is a ideological basis for a cross-class white united front that's not being confronted by other uh, white folks who claim to be our allies. In fact, we see, you know, these these elements associated with the, with the Democratic Party um, surrendering more and more ideological space to those right wing elements. That uh, they are not confronting issues of white supremacy. They're not confronting issues of the distorted uh, version of U.S. history. They are suggesting to these elements that, uh, uh, in fact, it is these, these internal uh, issues and contradictions that have to be addressed. You know, let's not talk about issues of race because that's also called identity politics. So is a very dangerous ideological space right now and a, and a lot of political confusion that has the, I think, the consequence of providing ideological support uh, to these these more extremist elements. Uh, you know, right now, we get focused on the more dramatic uh, expressions of white supremacist uh, groups uh, and activities, but I'm even more concerned about the white, the normalized white supremacy that is reflected in the neoliberal sector, the Democrats, the centrist Democrats uh, that are also white supremacists upholding white power who are, have been given a political pass, but who are responsible for some of the more aggressive moves towards strengthening the U.S. state and limiting the uh, access to critical information and analysis. So, you know, this is, this is a new, new conditions and new situation that we are facing here in this country, and it's very, very dangerous for all of us uh, who are, who are non, non-white uh, and who are members of the working class or who stand with uh, working-class people here in this country and internationally. Yeah, and I guess speaking of internationally, just this week, of course, you have the Speaker of the House not allowing a a vote on a on a war powers measure, uh, which is the responsibility of Congress that would basically end funding in U.S. support for this genocidal war or attack in Yemen. And I think that Rokana, who is one of the backers of the uh, measure, said that this was the first time that he knew of that 
the Congress was prevented from voting on a measure around war powers because this is the power of Congress, it's the responsibility of Congress, yet the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, prevented this from coming to the floor for a vote. And in the meantime, you have 14 million people starving. I know people keep saying on the brink of starvation, but no, there are millions of people starving right now and dying in Yemen. And and then you have this inaction by Congress. And, and it's obscene and immoral. And it's something that's been going on for a few years now. And it's only been in the last few months that there's been any penetration into the corporate media related to this issue in, in Yemen. Uh, but the reason why they are playing the kind of games they're playing in Congress right now with the War Powers Act and with the situation with Yemen is because they have very powerful forces and they don't want anything to change. The Saudis are major players when it comes to purchasing uh, U.S. armaments. And because of that, you're talking about billions of dollars in play. Uh, they don't want to do anything to, uh, to undermine that relationship between U.S. defense industries uh, and the Saudi authorities, even though now politically it's becoming a bit of a, of a problem. So both of these parties play these kinds of games. This is about uh, big money. Uh, it's about uh, billions of dollars in defense sales. It's about satisfying the regional needs of a major ally in that part of the world. And it doesn't really matter to them if millions of people, in fact, starve in the process. We remember what uh, Madeleine uh, Albright said uh, when asked about the issue of uh, half a million children dying in Iraq as a consequence of U.S. sanctions. And she said that she thought that uh, it was worth the price. Speaking of her, I mean, didn't mean to cut you off, but I was just really astounded that she came out with a book. Madeleine Albright comes out with a book warning about fascism related to Trump. <laughs> and it's almost as if they have no consciousness of the fact that they themselves have been actively engaged in this fascist project around the world. Like, what do they call it? What do, what do they call what they did? They call it a democracy. But that's part of the, the challenge to expose those contradictions to for people to understand that the Democrats are not going to be anyone's savior because they are part of the problem. They're representing the same kind of dominant interest. And so, yeah, it is appalling that they take these kinds of positions, uh, these hypocritical positions, and they don't get called out more than they have been. And they don't get called out because their worldviews, their interests, uh, their values are, are mirrored and reflected uh, in the corporate media. So there's a connection there that uh, seems at this point to be unbreakable. Speaking of the Democrats, uh, it occurred to me, and, and this might have been a conversation I had you know, during the election, was that the main difference between what the Republicans and the Democrats was, if you really listen very carefully to what Hillary Clinton was saying and what the Democrats were saying, the people who supported her is that they were willing to keep supporting the fascist project abroad. In other words, you can keep on doing what you're doing in Yemen, in Syria, in Libya, 
in Africa, you know, you can keep on doing that. You can keep repressing those folks abroad, but don't do it here. And like that was the only thing that the Democrats offered differently, that they thought they were offering people the fact that we would be less repressive here at home. And and so many of even African-American people who supported them, that to me, that's what they were saying that, okay, these people are going to be less repressive toward me, but they were willing to accept the repression that we were of people abroad. Well, you know, I think that you're absolutely right. And, And that's really one of the other contradictions of politics in the U.S., that one can uh, fashion themselves a progressive or a uh, even a radical and have a purely U.S. centric perspective and, and political stance. So you will be more concerned about the conditions in the U.S. Uh, and silent about U.S. imperialism and still can project yourself as a so-called progressive. Now, that has to be exposed. But basically, we have certain responsibilities in this country as citizens and residents of empire. And part of our responsibility is connected to our common humanity. It is an immoral position, in my opinion, for people who call themselves progressives to remain silent on the criminal activities that this state is engaged in uh, in support of the capitalist ruling class around the world. So that's part of the issue we have to deal with. That basically, African-Americans have moved toward the right along with everybody else in this country uh, as a consequence of the Obama administration or the Obama uh, experience. And what we have to do now, what we're trying to do in trying to rebuild an anti-war and anti-imperialist movement in this country is to reverse that process to the extent that we can. That's why we had the Peace Congress last weekend. That's why we are building the black Alliance for Peace. That's why we are going to Dublin to build this global uh, campaign to close our U.S. and NATO bases. We are getting ourselves positioned to try to inject some morality and some more and some authentic progressive politics back into the public domain because we have to, because we don't put a break on these forces. They're going to drive all of us to, in, in essence, they're going to drive, these forces are going to drive all of us basically to a point where the human population on this planet will be extinct. Yes, yes. And I, I wanted to just emphasize what you were saying around new narratives, because I know that just in terms of talking about Gaza, for example, I guess it was around the time of the beginning of the Great March of Return and the just weekly slaughter of unarmed protesters. I did a poem about it and just the reception. I could tell people were so uncomfortable when I was at a public space, you know, reading it. It was it was one thing at a kind of gathering of more activists, but just kind of like the general public at a similar type of gathering. You know, a woman, a white woman approached me and she said, aren't you afraid to say things like that? (laughs) So obviously people aren't hearing a variety of narratives, just like they only heard one narrative around the so-called caravan of people, refugees coming to this country, you know, but they don't really know that much about Honduras. They don't know about Berta Caceres. They don't know, you know, all the things that have produced that type of misery, you know, in Honduras. 
You know, but, but that kind of lack of awareness, that kind of innocence, if you will, cannot be allowed to continue. I mean, because there's a luxury that the people of the world cannot afford. Right. Because this state is responsible for so much suffering, so much death and destruction. We can't allow ourselves to be concerned about people's fragile consciousness. They've got to be hit right in the face with the reality of what their state is doing and forced to take a stance. Right. And that reminds me of, um, and I, I know I'm running out of time, but I, not long after the Iraq war ended, and I think there was a kind of like a people's, there have been a few different ones. Code Pink had a people's tribunal on the Iraq war, but this was before that. And I think that Phil, former TV host, <laughs> had a, a gathering here at one of the Friends Center's Quaker Meeting House. And they had several soldiers testifying, talking about how they naively went to Iraq, thinking that, that it had something to do with 9-11, that it had something to do with that Saddam Hussein had something to do with 9-11. And that while they were there, they became more aware and they became increasingly disillusioned. And I just I couldn't help but feel sitting there the way what you just expressed that we really can't afford to have you know another contingent or regiment of soldiers go abroad thinking that they're fighting for freedom or fighting for to bring democracy or whatever and then months later after millions more have died then say oh i didn't know i'm sorry yeah you know we just can't we, you know, the, those people over there can't afford that. We can't afford it here. What, 58% of every dollar I pay in federal taxes is going to fund the military? Even that is painful to me. Exactly. I mean, it's obscene that not just 58%, now it's going to like 61% of the budget is now being devoted toward the military. We're looking at the $1.2 trillion uh, now almost every year. We add all of it together. So it's obscene. And that money is being taken out of our pockets and put right in the pockets of the defense contractors. Right, right. You know, speaking of abroad and the U.S. interventions abroad, tell me about your concern about AFRICOM, what that is, and your petition drive. You know, part of our responsibility as we rebuild this anti-war movement here in this country is to bring a particular focus on how uh, U.S. war policies impact black people specifically, not just here in the U.S., which is important, the war being waged against black and brown uh, working class people here in this country, but also its impact globally. So what we're doing to make that connection between the war in the U.S. and the war being waged uh, externally, we have a focus in on the African continent uh, and the U.S. Africa Command, or better known as AFRICOM that we are calling on the U.S. to shut down the Africa Command and to withdraw from the African continent. We've seen that as a consequence of the growing presence of the U.S. on the African continent, uh, that we've seen an escalation of violence on the continent. And you can look at and talk about the, the invasion of Libya and the destruction of that state, uh, the ongoing conflict in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. You know, there are many, many hot spots, if you will, that have now been sort of facilitated by U.S. militarism. So we have a petition. Uh, we're trying to get people to sign the petition calling on the U.S. to withdraw from Africa, but calling on the Congressional Black Caucus, who is now in a stronger position as a consequence of the Democrats winning the elections, to 
organized uh, hearings to look at the impact of the Africa Command on the African continent. So we want people to sign the petition. You can go to our website, blackalliancefortpeace.com, to sign the petition, and you can support us in this effort. I've been speaking with Ajamu Baraka, human rights activist and national coordinator for Black Alliance for Peace. He was a nominee for vice president of the United States for the Green Party in 2016. Thank you for joining me today, Ajamu. My pleasure. And Ajamu Baraka will have the last word on today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, voices of resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. The music we played this hour included Rain Dance by Nana Vasconcelos and the Bush Dancers and Shalia by the Ether Orchestra. The veterans you heard speaking earlier in the show were speaking on November 11, 2018, near the National Mall and the many National War Memorials. You can write us at our website. We'd love to hear from you. If you are a listener and are on Facebook, please like our Facebook page. On the Ground Show, our page has a picket sign with green letters that say On the Ground. We're also on Twitter and on iTunes under the title WPFW On the Ground. And if you listen on podcasts, please give us a nice review. We very much appreciate it. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. <laughs>